We're going to be in Galatians chapter 3 again. We're going to be looking at uh, verses 15 through 20. You want to go ahead and turn there? For the last few weeks, we've been looking at, at how it was that God was going to create by the cross of Jesus one family, one family out of all the nations of the earth, including Israel. And that's what the gospel is about. What is happening in the book of Galatians is that there is a group of people who have come and they are trying to divide that family. They're trying to divide the family back into Jew and Gentile. And they are trying to get the people to be circumcised and to bring themselves back up under the law of Moses. This, Paul says, is to create two families, or maybe even more, but it is not to do the will of God, and that is to, to create in the body of the Messiah one family, one family of believers. We're going to be in Galatians 3, 15 through 20 today. We're going to look at uh, some very difficult uh, passages. These, um, these passages, especially uh, the last thing that we'll deal with, uh, have been really difficult for for exegetes, for those who are writing about these topics, who are preaching it, uh, it's been a very difficult passage. I hope to be able to deal with that in a way that makes a lot of a lot of sense out of out of where we've been, where we're going, and what this whole chapter has been about. That one family of God created in Christ Jesus. So that's that's really what it's about. Paul has not left that idea. Uh, we'll start really with a, just a brief review of where we've been so that we can keep up with Paul's train of thought in this chapter. It's very dense. Here in verse 15, he seems to get off track, but actually he's coming back to his main theme. God has created one family for Abraham through the death of the Messiah. This is the theme. And the way that that works out is through faith in this faithful act of Jesus on the cross, who through his obedient death brought about the one body, in his own body. By giving himself for our sins, he created in his own body one body. This is why we are called the body of the Messiah. And there can only be one body of Christ, right? Not two. There can't be but one with him at the head. And this is what this is what Paul is all about in this letter. The Spirit, as he mentions at the beginning of chapter three, being poured out on Jew and Gentile, all who believe is the person who brings this one family about. That's what the Spirit is doing in this. This is actually going to replace the Torah. The Spirit, written, uh, the Spirit is going to write the law of God upon the hearts, and this makes no room for tablets written on, uh, the Word of God written on stone, going to be written in the hearts of men. This is what the, the Spirit is actually doing. And so to, uh, to seek to divide that family, to seek to undo this one family is actually to, uh, is to undo the very work of God in, in the new covenant. We should note here also that the creation of this single body was actually the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. This is very important. A premise of verses 15 through 19 is this. This promise made to Abraham was actually a covenant that God made with Abraham who believed that God could and would create for him a family. 
The next premise is God is one. We're going to come back to that at the very end, and we're going to look at what that means. It doesn't simply mean that God is one being, that he just is a singularity. That is not how Paul views the, the doctrine of, of the, the unity of God. The Shema, as you're, you're probably familiar with, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, says, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And, and the Jews are to say this, if I'm not mistaken, every day, this is what they are to say. Paul is going to breathe new life into that, and he is going to make the argument that if God is one God, then he only has one family. And this family then has been created through his death. God is one. God made a covenant. God made a covenant with Abraham. And Abraham believed that he would give him a family. This is what it was all about. Look at Genesis chapter 15 when you have time. The promise was not that he would one day die and go to heaven. The promise was, is that Abraham would be given a family, descendants. That's what he would be given. Descendants and one unitary family composed of Jew and Gentile. And this means, both theoretically and practically, that the family he creates should not be divided any longer into Jew and Gentile. As he will say in verse 28, which is where we're going, next week we'll see this, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The people of God is not divided by race, status, or gender, period. Very progressive. But Paul, the people of God is not divided by race, status, or gender. That's what it says. We're going to talk about this more next week. But if you think about the sign of circumcision, who is to bear that? Men, right? What does this do? This makes second-rate citizens out of, out of the women. This is why he goes in this direction. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, Male or female, that's where he goes. And this is where the law becomes relevant in the discussion. Though the law of God was good, holy, and just, one of the express purposes of the law was to divide. Specifically, to divide Israel from the nations. In other words, it divided the seed the seed which, according to the promise to Abraham, would include some of the descendants of Abraham and the Gentiles too, the nations. In chapter 2, we saw that, that the episode with Peter was not simply an illustration of how to have good manner, manners towards your guests. It is a central illustration of how the law of Moses divided Jew and Gentile. Remember the story. Peter came to Antioch and was eating and drinking with the Gentiles, as he should have been. He was living the gospel. A group of men from James, that is Jerusalem, showed up and began to draw Peter away, telling him that he had no business eating with the Gentiles. And Peter, in his hypocrisy, withdrew from fellowship with the Gentiles because he feared the men from James. Now, what he did through his actions was really to create two families. Those who possessed the law, which prescribed separation between Israel and the nations, Jew and Gentile, and between those who possessed the law of Moses and those who did not. And as we saw last week, 
those who possess the law are those Paul describes as being out of the law. Those are the ones who are out of the law. That is, they possess the law by virtue of being in the covenant of Moses. To reiterate from last week, to be out of the law doesn't mean that these who are disrupting the Galatians thought they were earning their way to heaven. It means simply that they believed that having and keeping the law was the way that they showed that they had covenant membership. And they would say that the Galatians had not fully arrived because they had not embraced circumcision and Torah observance. Those who truly were in the covenant, according to them, would become circumcised and keep the law. Now, I admit that uh, if this sounds a bit strange to us, it should, because this is not how we typically read Galatians, but that is the issue that is being discussed here. We have always thought that the issue is between those who do good deeds to go to heaven and those who believe in Jesus. And there's some truth to that, but what Paul is dealing with here is quite different. He has a particular argument, argument in mind and a particular story about how God is working in the world. Yes, these things do have consequences, which is why he is so serious about it. He is very serious that if you go about dividing Jew from Gentile, if anyone preaches a gospel other than the one that he's delivered to them, let him be accursed. In other words, let him be where he is trying to put the Galatian believers under the curse of the law and outside the new covenant of promise. If someone continues to divide the body and place the burden of law keeping upon those under his care in order to separate this body into two, he will be unwinding what God has done in the Messiah's death. He runs the risk of not obtaining the resurrection of being excluded from the very family of Abraham. That is the risk that's being posed. Paul says to be in that position is to be under the curse of the law. We must get the central issue correct. And thus Paul returns to the, the central issue here in verses 15 through 20, the covenant and who is in it. Let's read verses 15 through 20. Uh, you will see when we get to, when we get to verse 20, I'm going to translate that a little bit differently, and I hope, and I'll come back, and at the end, I'll explain why I did that and why this actually makes, makes good sense of this very terse and difficult language that Paul uses. Starting in verse 15, to give a human example, brothers, or let me illustrate, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promises void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it is no longer by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by a mediator. And that mediator is Moses. We know that from reading the scriptures, but this has been a major point of contention. Who is the mediator that he's talking about? It's Moses. But the mediator, that is Moses, 
is not the mediator of the one family, but God is one. This is what he's dealing with here. The mediator, that is Moses, is not the mediator of the one. Now, the text is going to say, but the mediator is not of one. It's very difficult, very difficult language. But what he's talking about here is that Moses cannot be the mediator of a single people because he was the mediator of Israel. In other words, the promise was that in Abraham, God would create a people out of Jew and Gentile. What the law does is it creates one, pe one people that cannot be entered into by the outside world. Two families, right? Is God, the, is God the God of the nations? Well, if he is, it seems as though he's just the God of the, of the Jews. But he is not. He is the God of the Gentiles as well. He's going to create one family. And the mediation that Moses made was only on behalf of Israel, not of the nations. So the mediator is not the mediator of only one family, that is, of, of Jews. We'll come back to this at the, uh, toward the end. And thus Paul returns to the central issue here in 15 through 20, the covenant, the covenant. Here is his, um, here is his argument. It goes something like this. Even if a, a human makes a will and has it confirmed, let's say he has it notarized, so to speak, no one adds to it or takes away from it, right? It's a will. It's put in place by witnesses. It's fixed. God made a will, a covenant. And it just so happens that the word in Greek that means will also means covenant. And it actually is a will. What, if you think of what is what is at stake when someone makes a will? What, what does that designate to a designee? An inheritance, right? So is there an inheritance with the covenant God made with Abraham? Yes, of course there is. It's the land, which we'll deal with. So he makes a will. He makes a covenant. And this, this covenant includes an inheritance. No one adds to it or takes away from it. Now, within that will was a promise, a promise. And the promise was the promise of an inheritance. To you, Abraham, and to your seed, a singular seed, I will give this land. We will return to the issue of the land, but for now we should note that Paul is arguing that the family of Abraham is to be one family who will receive the inheritance. One seed is the language that he uses in this text. Some of your Bibles may, may use the word seed. That's the word that's used there because that's the word that's used in, in Genesis as well. To your seed, I will give this land. This seed will receive the inheritance, the land. Parenthetically, actually, I want to go into this for just a minute. The land, we often think of, of the land as being that strip of land over, over in the Middle East in Israel. It was, but it is greater than that. The land is actually a sign of the possession by God's people and of his Messiah of the whole earth. We look at Psalm 2, for example. We look at Psalm 2. What is it that God promises his anointed one? The ends of the earth I will give as your inheritance, 
all the nations. This means that what's happened with the, with the whole promise of the land has actually been expanded. And it includes the whole globe. This is what the inheritance is for the people of God. For you and I, the inheritance is the whole globe. God has given that to his Messiah, and he's given it to his people. And we will inherit that one day. One day when we get to Romans 8, we'll see, that, we'll see how, that, how that works out. That is exactly what's going on here. Look at Psalm 2, though. Psalm 2 is, is very important in this regard. You don't have to wait till the New Testament. You don't have to wait till Romans 4.13, which says that they will inherit the world. That's what he says, Romans 4.13. So Paul says it, but you don't have to wait there. You don't have to wait till you get there. You can, you can go to Psalm two, other places. It's implicit. It's implicit within the within the story of Genesis because, let's say, let's say the descendants of Abraham are going to possess the nations, and that's what it says. If that is the case, then they must possess the whole world, right? It's also it's also jives with what Jesus says: the meek shall inherit the earth, right? That's what he said. This is the promise, and this is the inheritance that is given to God's people. Romans chapter 4, verse 13. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Abraham was to be the heir of the world. And if he was to be the heir, those who are in his family would also inherit. And this is what Paul is dealing with here. This seed will receive the inheritance, the land, the whole world. This is actually clear from, clear, fairly clear from Genesis 15, 5. The seed of Abraham will be innumerable, like the sand of the sea, and they will inherit the land. Genesis 15, 5. And he took him outside and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said, so shall your seed be. That's what he meant. They're going to be as innumerable as the stars of heaven. Now, does that mean just the Jews? Of course not, because in chapter 12, he's already, uh, he's already promised him that he's going to inherit the nations. He's going to possess the nations, which means he's going to possess the whole world, he and his descendants. Now, this doesn't, doesn't completely solve the problem here because Paul turns around and tells the Galatians that the seed is the Messiah. The seed is Jesus. He says in Galatians 3.16, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his seed. It does not say, and to seeds, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your seed, who is Christ. Now, even though he means what I'm about to say, he doesn't actually say it. Listen, Galatians, you are the seed just like any Jewish person who believes in the Messiah. You're on equal footing to receive the inheritance with those who are the natural branches. No, he says Christ is the seed. Now, let's see what, how he gets there. What could he possibly mean by saying, if he's wanting to say the Galatians are actually part of the inheritance, if they're going to receive the inheritance just like any person who believes in the Messiah, why does he say that the Messiah 
is the one who receives the promise. What could he possibly mean? This is the language of representation and incorporation. Now these are big words, but think about it when someone represents you. What does it mean for someone to represent you? It means that you and he stand in the same place. You are one, you are united in everything that you are about. This is the language of representation. When you are in Christ, he is your representative and you are summed up in him. You're also incorporated into him. You are a part of him. This is why Paul uses the language of incorporation. To be in Christ means to be incorporated into him and everything that he is, is what you are. One thing that we must always remember as we talk about Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, is that when Paul uses the terminology Christ or Messiah, he understands that the Christ, the Messiah, is the person in whom the destiny and purposes of Israel and also of the world, as laid out in Scripture, is fulfilled. The Messiah is the person in whom the destiny and purpose of Israel is fulfilled. In other words, when Paul speaks of Jesus the Messiah, he understands Jesus to be the embodiment of Israel in one person, and that person is Israel's representative, the representative Israelite who can become a substitute for them. Just like David was for Israel, except this representative becomes our substitute and the substitute for Israel. Remember that this is at least uh, part of the reasons that the Synoptic Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, portray Jesus as going down into Egypt, coming up out of Egypt, as Israel did, going into the land, crossing the Jordan in his baptism, in a replication of the Exodus, and crossing the Red, and in their crossing of the Red Sea, and going to Jerusalem to build a temple and put God's name there to dwell. This is why the gospel writers do this, to say that Jesus is Son of God, He is the embodiment of Israel, and all of their hopes and, and dreams are to be placed in Him. Jesus announced as Son of God at His baptism, is doing what Israel, the Son of God, failed to do, to be a light to the world and reconcile the world to Himself. God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. It begins with God, it ends with God, but Christ is the one through whom the promises come to pass. That is to say that in him, all of the promises are fulfilled. In him, Israel's destiny and purpose is fulfilled, and the world's destiny also. Those who are in him are represented by him, both Jew and Gentile. Thus, when he says that the promise was to the seed, that is Christ, he is not saying that Jesus alone inherits, inherits it, but that he sums up all who are in him. He inherits, and all who are with him inherit. To illustrate, if you look at 2 Samuel chapter 5, you will see that this representation is actually built on the story of David representing Israel. It's much like we see there. When the tribes of Israel go out to David at Hebron and they say to him, 
Indeed, we are bone of your bone and flesh of your flesh. Also, in times past, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord said to you, you shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. Therefore, all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant, <clears throat> made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. What is happening here? The people have agreed that David is their head, and they are his body. You hear the language? We are your bone and your flesh. This means that David is the head, and they are his body. They have established solidarity with him. They are one with their messianic king. And this is how it works with Jesus as well. Jesus and his people are built on this model, which is one way that Jesus is said to be son of David. He is anointed, the anointed king of Israel. The Messiah is the head. Paul will use this language as well. The Messiah is the head and his people are the body. There is solidarity between the head and the body. And thus the, thus the, the Messiah speaks on behalf of his people and represents them, fighting for and with them. And our Jesus does that too. He is our king who fights for and with us. When Paul says that the Messiah, when he says the Messiah, he also means all those who are represented by the Messiah. So that if the Messiah inherits the, the inheritance, so also do his people, both Jew and Gentiles, his body. Now that Paul has established the recipient of the promise, the Messiah, on behalf of his people, consisting of Jew and Gentile, he must de then deal with the relationship of the law to the promise. And this is not simply an abstract concept. Law piety versus grace piety. This is a historical question and a question that relates to God's greater plans for the world through Israel. The question is this, how does God plan to fulfill the covenant promise he made with Abraham? Through the covenant he made with Israel at Sinai, which they constantly broke, or through some other means, the act of faithfulness of Jesus the Messiah. We, of course, know the answer, but Paul must address the question. The question of the essential nature and the permanent nature of the law. Is the law essential and is it permanent? That's the question he must answer. This is the question that I think we, we also have had. Is the law permanent? Was it intended to be permanent? God gave it. Does God give something that's not intended to be permanent? The question Paul addresses in 17 and 18 is this. If the law was given by God, doesn't that make it essential, permanent, and the means by which God will fulfill the promise to Abraham? I mean, why would God give the law if it were not to further his purposes and bring about the promises? Now, Paul's answer is not simple, and this, why it has, this is why it has often been confusing. This is the summary, though. The law, the Mosaic Covenant, had a role. Okay? It was essential. It had a role within the plan of God, 
that was to be for a time and for specific purposes. But it was not the end. It was not the goal to which the promise to create a single seed looked. It had a role within the plan of God that was for a time and for specific purposes, but it was not the end, the goal to which the promise to create a single family for Abraham looked. Paul's argument is this. The law was given 430 years after the promise, and therefore it cannot annul the promise given to Abraham. What was the promise to give, given to Abraham? God was going to create a single family for Abraham. In this way, it cannot bring about the promise of a single seed, since it was given much later and actually had a different purpose. Thus, when Paul says that the law cannot annul the promise because it was 430 years later, he means that they are two covenants with two distinct purposes given at different times. The inheritance, which was based on and originated with the promise of Abraham, could not come by what was given 30, 430 years later. Now, this is, this is the mistake that a lot, of, a lot of us as Christians have made when looking at this. This does not mean that it did not have its purposes. It did, and they were not against the promises, but the promises could not be brought about through the law. In fact, the law was not given for this purpose at all. It was, as Paul says in verse 19, added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise had been given. The law had a supportive role, even essential, but it lacked the power to bring about the promise. It was added because of the transgressions of Israel. Here's how it worked. You parents go away for a weekend and you leave your children at home. They throw a party and they trash the house. You've already made a covenant with them. They're going to receive your will when you die, right? But when you get home, what do you do when you find out? You tell them how mature they've been, how proud of them you are. They've trashed your house. No, you give them guidelines that will prevent it from ever happening again until they can handle freedom until they become mature. Now these rules, let's call them laws, can't produce a single thing in your children because that's not why you gave them. You didn't give them rules to change their hearts. You gave them rules to, have, to give them time to grow up and to give them just a bit of wisdom. I'm not advocating laws or no laws at all. This is just an illustration, but this is precisely what God did with Israel. I'm just saying that this is a natural response of both parents to immature children and God to immature children. He gives them a law to keep them from disintegrating into no people at all until the coming of the seed. She is immature as a people. As Paul will later say, we're going to see, he actually uses this argument. And God gives them the law for wisdom, or because of their transgressions. With the effect that, in verse 23, it confined 
Israel under sin. It locked them up so that the promise might be to Jew and Gentile, to all who believed. Since now, it was that Gentile was out there under sin. They were the sinners. With the giving of the law, sin is also found to be in Israel. And all now are locked up under sin. This is what Paul argues is happening with the giving of the law. But it could never be the final act, since it couldn't do what the covenant of Abraham intended, to create one family and give life to that family. But what did it do positively? It preserved Israel as a people until the Messiah, until the final act, until the final act of Jesus. Now, for the end of 19 and 20, this one, these two passages, these two verses have given interpreters fits over the ages. This is my translation of it, and I'm going to discuss why it is that we should read it this way in light of what, we've, what I've just said. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through, the, through angels by the hand of a mediator, Moses. But the mediator, Moses, is not the mediator of only one family, but God is one. What does this mean? The law was put in place by angels through Moses. He was the mediator of that covenant. If you want to read more about this and Paul's explanation of it, look at 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is about the new covenant. And he compares the people under the old covenant, under the covenant with Moses, with those under the covenant with Jesus. It was put in place by angels through Moses, the mediator of that covenant. This law was for specific purposes. Here he says, and there are more reasons, but because of transgressions. There was a real danger that the people of Israel, through their transgressions, the people who carried the very promise of Abraham would disintegrate and cease being a people. There was a real danger of this. And so when Paul says it's given because of transgressions, those transgressions actually threatened to undo that one family that was created at, at Sinai. And if that family disintegrated, God could not later build one family through the Messiah. What does he do to prevent this? He gives the law in response to their transgressions. We just need to read the story of Exodus to see how this works. I'm not going to read it today. It's quite lengthy. But the people sin. You will see that after every major sin, they are given a new set of laws. And the priesthood, the priesthood itself is a very result of the transgressions of Israel. Where is it? What is it that, that's happening while Moses is up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments? They're building a golden calf. What happens after that? He comes down, he shatters the, the tablets, he puts in place a priesthood, and this priesthood is actually for locking in the people, keeping them one body, keeping them a unit. And Paul says this was in view of the fullness of time, the fullness of time when he would send his son. Now, this law not only keeps Israel as a people, and this is the sticking point in Galatians, it keeps them separate from the peoples, from the nations, to whom they were to take the promise. 
It is for this reason that it was to be temporary until the seed should come to whom the promise was made. This is what the word until means, right? It was added because of transgressions until. That little adverb means that it was designed to pass away. Don't tell your Presbyterian friends this, but it was designed to pass away. Okay? It is for this reason that it was to be temporary, until the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And this is Paul's emphasis, as we've seen. The single seed that God is creating, Jew and Gentile. Since this law divided Israel from the nations, it could not bring about a single family. And this is why he says that Moses, the mediator mentioned here, was not the mediator of the one. In other words, the one that God was going to create that consisted of Jew and Gentile, Moses could not be the mediator of that one. He means that Moses, as mediator of the Sinai uh, covenant, was the mediator between God and Israel. But that covenant was not for the single family, the one family consisting of Israel and the nations, which is about what the promise of Abraham was about. If the original will or covenant was that God would give him a single family, the law, the law actually worked against that, that promise by separating Israel from the nations. Now, it was intended, so it wasn't against, on a larger scale, it wasn't against the promise to God. He's going to come back to that. It was intended, but it was intended to expire because it had the, the, the consequence of keeping Israel separate from the nations. Now, he's going to come back to this, but I'm going to mention it. I'm going to mention it here. He gives the illustration a little bit later about the law being a pedagogos. This is the word that is often translated as a tutor, but it should more appropriately, I think, be translated as something like a babysitter, a babysitter. And this takes us back to our illustration of, of you, us going out of town, leaving our children at home, they throw a party, they get wild, they trash the place. We come back and we give them laws, right? We put things in place that are gonna prohibit this from happening again. What Paul says later is that this law was actually a babysitter and it was designed to watch over the children, to get them to school, to get them here and there until it could, they, they no longer needed one, right? When, when your children grow up, hopefully, when we grew up, we ceased needing a babysitter. Right? But this is, the, this is the, actually the language that Paul was going to use to talk about the law. Now, notice the final statement in, in verse 20. And this, this, is, this is our last point. It's not insignificant. God is one, he says. So he says, but the mediator, Moses, was not the mediator of the one family, but God is one. Now that, it doesn't mean a whole lot to us, but when, God, when, when Paul says God is one, Everyone who hears him, who is accustomed to reading their, uh, or reciting, they had it memorized, to reciting the Shema would hear, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Now, what, what Paul gets into here is to say that the nature of God, the very design of God, the purpose of God to create one family reflects that he is one God, which means what Paul was referring to when he talked about God being unitary, one, 
he wasn't simply talking about there's just one individual. Like we often think of, of this argument about the oneness of God in relation to is he one or is he three? What Paul viewed, the way that Paul viewed the Shema is he viewed this as referring to the way that God relates to the world. That if God himself is unified, that means he's not going to have two families. And if God's, God's intention was to redeem the whole world, that family that is a result of that, which is a result of the promise made to Abraham, is only going to be one family, not two. He's not simply talking about God being a singular being, but that there is one God for all humanity. And since Sinai, Mount Sinai, could not create the one people reflecting the oneness of God over all the peoples, it could not be the answer to the Abrahamic promise that God would create one people. But the Messiah did. The Messiah, through his death, as we saw last week, bore the curse of Israel, which curse, Israel was under the curse outside of the land. They were under the curse of, of the law, and therefore they could not deliver the promise of Abraham to the nations. When God sent his Messiah, God sent his king, God sent his king to bear that curse for Israel, so that, as we saw in, in verse 13, the promise of Abraham might go to you and to me, to those of us who are not Jewish, to those who are Gentiles as well, that we might inherit the world. Now, when the Messiah would come, this means there would be no need for the law because the Spirit would do what the law could not do. Look at Romans 8. Look at Romans 8. For what the law could not do, weak as it was because of the flesh, God did in sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and, because, and for a sin offering, he condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus. And then he goes on to say, those who are led by the spirit, these are the sons of God. These are the ones who put to death the flesh. That spirit is the spirit that God has promised to give you if you embrace his son. And that is the way to the new covenant. What the spirit is to the new covenant, the tablets were to the Mosaic covenant. And God will write his law upon your heart and you will love him. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, your soul, and your strength. You'll love your neighbor as yourself. This is what God intends to do through his spirit and through the new covenant. And Paul says, if you embrace something else, if you embrace the covenant with Moses, you will be undoing this work that God is doing in the world. You will be embracing your own exile and death. Amen.